someone I used to teach, Stephen had just come from China and he comes back, he's walking in the market and he's told, we've been looking for you, we told you not to come because you're a thief. At eight in the morning, he's shot in the market, 17 years old. Or Charles Miner, who was on a building site, working, was dragged from a building site at 2 p.m. and said, you're a thief and shot in broad daylight. And the killings we've documented in Madare have, have circumstances like this. And maybe dead bodies are the evidence that people need to say that Nairobi is working on its crime problem. Mm. But for me, I think it's much deeper because you can see throughout the history of Madare or these poor urban settlements, there's already the consideration of people as not worthy to be city dwellers or not worthy to be citizens or always suspects. Wangui is an urban anthropologist currently affiliated with the African Center for Cities. She has done a range of interesting things, but this conversation focuses on work in her hometown of Nairobi, in particular on the Mathari area, which, if you know the city, is often labeled as a slum or some sort of den of iniquity, if the newspapers are to be believed. The recurring theme here is the effort to do things differently in the face of a stifling or even broken status quo. What do public authority and urban planning look like when they are viewed from the perspective of marginalized communities? What questions do those communities themselves want answered as opposed to those that researchers tend to focus on? Perhaps most difficult when you have those answers, how do they fit into a political or a policy conversation that has been very much anchored in the rhetoric of development for several generations now. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Firstly, thanks for doing this um, and receiving me at this quite lovely, I will say, uh, co-working space in, in, in Nairobi. I do generally start these with a basic positioning. Uh, if you meet someone socially, how do you describe what you do for a living? Uh, I usually just say I'm a researcher <laughs> and people think it's boring anyway, so they don't probe, <laughs> probe further. That simplifies things. Um, but there was a time in my life when I wanted to be known as an urban disc planner, not an urban planner, <laughs> because I thought live, growing up in this city and seeing some of the, the kind of formal exclusions that urban planning has entrenched and keeps reproducing, I wanted to make a card saying I was an urban disc planner. Did you actually make uh, a card? I, I you, thought, you gave it serious consideration. <laughs> I gave it serious consideration and I think on the card I just put urban ethnographer. But if I meet someone in the bar, I just say yeah. I'm a researcher and then very few people follow up. Mm. Um, but Currently, I am a postdoc researcher at the African Center for Cities mm -hmm. at the University of Cape Town. But I also do personal research on Nairobi, not for a salary, but more so as personal interest. I'm the participatory action research coordinator for a small social justice center in Kenya called Madare Social Justice Center. Where else is that work taken you? My postdoc work, I mean, most recently I was doing research on Chinese built and finance infrastructure in Angola and Nairobi and par our participatory research on issues like police killings or access to water or disability in poor settlements takes us various places, mostly in the margins, really the imposed margins of Nairobi. Wouldn't you say as a personal thing you do work in Nairobi, meaning uh, difficult to get that sort of financed and, and, and professionalized in, in a way? Why, why is that a personal thing? Partially because I don't want it financed and professionalized. Okay. Because in some ways for me, it would be easy for me to get a job in a organization that does urban research. But the kind of research we want to do and 
that I don't want to professionalize or receive a salary for requires that you build relationships across and deal with things that are part of building humanity and not an archive of research for an organization, you know. And we are also intentionally trying not to monetize this work to make sure that it values the, the experiential knowledge of poor people in this city, but has a much more, a much more, if I can say, profound goal to change structures and to change livelihoods for generations and to change how people narrate themselves to and place themselves in this city that tries to reject them or a country that tries to reject them. And so mm. it's not something that I would like to receive a salary for. It's something I see as really important for people to have a commitment to changing their city, but also as a middle-class person in this city who receives so much benefit from it. I think it's really important for me to direct and leverage my privilege towards trying to ensure that people survive and thrive. Not to sound so, I really fear sounding like I've positioned myself as the Mother Teresa. Well, don't worry, I'm, I'm, about to, uh, I'm about to chase that down. <laughs> so you, you grew up here. I did. Um, can you walk me through a little bit sort of what that looked like and how you come into contact what, with what you've described as, as uh, the margins or excluded sort of spaces within the city? The margins are not, are, are everywhere in the city. You can't, mm. uh, and it's good that they make themselves known everywhere in the city as they should, mm. but they're not, they're not so distant. So I grew up in the city, I was born here. My dad was born here, but Nairobi was not uh, when he was born, it was the capital city, sure, but it, it was still very close to Kikuyu rural areas. So uh, he was born here and my mama was born elsewhere. And they moved here. My mom came here because she had some education. None of them went to university, but they had some education and so they could get jobs here. But I, my parents separated and so I grew up with a single mother. Mm -hmm. So we were not... Even if I grew up with a single mother, she still had education and knew how to navigate herself in the city. And so we lived well enough. We went to good schools and we had food, so we were fine. But the margins, you don't need to walk too far to, to see people living in much worse conditions mm -hmm. than you. So I grew up in South B and close to South B is Mukuru. But even in your own family, you have significant degrees of variation of access you know people who can't afford to bury each other or you know structural adjustment will make sure a whole uh, generation of people who got jobs as civil servants no longer have jobs no mm -hmm. longer have pensions so you could only see if you wanted to be attuned to it and you I think we need to be attuned to it the different the disparities in this country and that to be honest I think are are really are much worse than when I was growing up. And so I grew up and I went to school in Kenya, but for my post-secondary education, I went to school in Canada. Mm -hmm. And, but throughout this time, I mean, uh, in my comings back and forth, I, uh, I connected with someone at uh, something that's called the People's Parliament, a formation of young people then, this was about 2007. And he took me to Madari constituency. So Madari is a poor urban settlement, but it's also a constituency. And when I was there, like most middle-class people, I started engaging in charity work. I don't know, most middle-class people. Okay, <laughs> but on. like, that's how you conceive that's your- That's the kind of engagement. Yeah, yeah, that's a kind of engagement that is instinctive and that it's easy to get involved in. Since then, I've been rethinking what I can do and moving away from charity work to historicizing poor areas mm -hmm. because that's also important to historicize them as really grave articulations of our really colonial political economy and a global capitalism that's that can make people disposable but from within then trying to think what what is possible because if we just do this charity work we'll 
it's, it's important to give people food, but then that's where it ends. You don't question who's in power. You don't mm. question the metamorphosizing oppressions that really shape people's lives. So the same people who don't have water, don't, don't have toilets, are, their children are being killed, they're landless. So all of these things, trying to connect them and historicize them and using that to inform a more grounded activism. Mm -hmm. Obviously with contradictions, because we all have contradictions. Without uh, yeah. too much existential <laughs> angst, perhaps. If we could start with the physical space. Mathare yes. um, is a pretty central part of mm -hmm. Nairobi. Could you situate that for us? You, you, you're visiting that part of the city. What does that look like? Where does it start? How do you know you're in Mathare and not somewhere else? So just to pick up on the history a little bit, Nairobi is in its present iteration, began in 1899. Africans were not really allowed to live in the city unless they had a pass mm. or a labor pass. You know that in Kenya we call it the Kipandi, your migrant labor. But uh, of course, that's very hard to entrench, as it should be. And so various pockets of Africans began to live in Eastlands. So Madari is in the east of the city and Eastlands was allocated for Africans because it was a floodplain, it had uh, less mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So ecology also was racialized and so then Africans could live there. But then, of course, as the city grows and proceeds, you need stone or you need bricks to create the city. And so Madari started being a, a key quarry site, probably from in the archives, I saw documents talking about it being a quarry from about 1921 mm -hmm. till probably the late 1940s. Uh, and because you're not allowed to live in the city, really, officially, then you start living in the caves mm -hmm. if you're working within the quarry. And then there, a small settlement grows. But it's never had Eastlands broadly, but particularly Madare and also Dandora. They're always framed as like outlaw spaces. Mm -hmm. In the 50s, they were part of the, the core urban heart of Mau Mau resistance, so independent struggles. Mm. So people used to hide guns in the river. Then people were evicted and the settlements demolished. It, history goes like this and via accretion, the bad, the bad framing continues. And mm -hmm. so now it's known as a place where it's a cash crop of illegal alcohol, lots of drugs also, and just framed as a place where the criminals and the prostitutes live, who are also the children of criminals and prostitutes, <laughs> really. And the MP said that. I'm quoting the member of parliament. I mean, I'm laughing because I, I read something in the, um, is it the Daily Standard? Probably the Standard, uh, yeah. Which, I, when I was Googling Atharian, it was the most just appallingly prejudicial, it is. like 19th century, Victorian 19th century sort of attitude. Yeah. A, a den of, of scum and villainy. Completely. One way to believe it. Go on. And so that continues. And so when activists are charging against physical violence, they're also charging against this narrative. Yeah. And so, but aesthetically, it varies because your key signpost for Madara is Mlango Kubwa, which is, the, which is the initial ward after Pangani, and it has stone, ten, stone tenements, but mm -hmm. you can see that these stone tenements are built to standards that would never happen here or elsewhere. Some of them are uh, housing with shared washrooms. There's not good water connection. So as you proceed, you see stone tenements, but there are also the corrugated iron shacks. And the closer you get to the river, the poorer it gets, but it's a mixture now of not well-regulated or built stone tenements, which every rainy season at least one falls and people mm -hmm. die, and also the corrugated shacks that we're used to seeing. The density is uh, quite significant. I would say in the last master plan, it said that perhaps there are 500 people per hectare, mm -hmm. 500 whereas here there's probably five mm. you know so this is very populous but at the same time it's buzzing with life and labor and activities and people living even if the city doesn't recognize their right to that space so it's really mm. inspiring in that way 
And you have hinted several times that the positioning of this part of the city is administratively determined or enforced in a way. Um, that it was a, a formal exclusion was the word you were used or imposed margins. Could you elaborate on that? What is sort of the legal, regulatory, administrative structure that creates this space? You know, it's, it's uh, in some ways I'm trying to understand that more because there are many contradictions. In one sure. sense, if the government says it's going to build a road through Madare, it's going to build it, and somehow there are regulations and the people figure out who owns the land or who doesn't own the land, etc. But for the most part, for people who have houses there, who've lived for four generations, they don't have a title to that land. But I say it's formally excluded because it's one of the oldest settlements in the city, but there's no basic services. The lack of basic services is informed by this derogatory framing of people mm -hmm. that makes them undeserving of services and that whether implicitly or explicitly informs the county's neglect. But really, it's one of the oldest neighborhoods. It's close to fancy, fancy Muthaiga, mm -hmm. which is down the road. It's surrounded by places that have piped water networks, so it's not impossible to mm -hmm. do that in Madare. Partially, I think the informality allows that because the land is expensive. It's not cheap mm -hmm. because it's three kilometers from the city. I think the Perpetuating an informality allows that when it needs to be grabbed by the government, it will be grabbed, you know. But these are, there are people who are four generations and have lived there, his parents have lived there since the 30s and the 40s. Is there a kind of symbiotic, well, maybe parasitic, not symbiotic, uh, relationship between that kind of space in Nairobi and the rest of the city? I mean laborers, day laborers and casual workers and people in the informal part of the economy have to live somewhere. Are they concentrated in spaces like this in order to service the rest of the economy? Would that be a fair description? Uh, in some ways, Madare, for people who maybe uh, low-level civil servants or people who work in the city but receive low wages. Yeah. There are people who maybe receive the minimum wage, but because uh, housing is so expensive in the city, they also live in mm -hmm. Madare or in these tenements that are, are not well built. So it does serve a population who go to work in the city as mm. matatu drivers or bus drivers, as hawkers, as vegetable sellers. But a large segment of the Madare population also work within Madare mm -hmm. or wash clothes for more prosperous settlements or neighborhoods like Eastleigh mm -hmm. or Moja. So they, in some ways you can say it's a default place to live if you have a job and can't afford anywhere else in mm -hmm. the city. But many people also in Madare don't have jobs and mm -hmm. are holding on to their tiny spaces that maybe their mother lived in. It's really a, it's like an ecosystem of people who've been there for various motivations for many years. It's mm -hmm. not, and that's one thing that makes me strike against this narrative of rural urban migration is that this migration to Madari was a lot earlier than mm. people often put in UN documents that these are just poor people from the rural areas moving to the city. You know, people have been there for many years. Yeah, I, I was actually just about to ask the extent to which it was an arrival destination. And I assume part of the answer is that that's going to vary between different parts of Nairobi yes. substantially. We'll, we'll, we'll stick with Mathari, but I'm just curious, would you change the narrative you just gave in very significant ways for other quote-unquote slum areas in in Nairobi? You know, it depends. Is uh, it distinctive in, in, in particular ways, do you think? So Kibera, which is the most known, the and in some ways celebrity. everyone and their mother <laughs> International from celebrity Hollywood has area, gone yeah. to Kibera. It was given by the Queen. I think there's a more formal... <laughs> there were air quotes there, just, the, so, just I, so we're clear. <laughs> there's a more 
formal word that they use in archive, but the, yeah. it had like consent from the queen for Sudanese Nubian soldiers to live there from about 1903. So it has this long history. For the people who lived there, they had that allocation. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Madare, there was never a formal decree. But it, they have long histories, Dandora included, mm. um, Korogocho. However, the conditions we can see in all of these settlements, they become so much worse, uh, so much worse. Now, Korogocho and Dandora are synonymous with the dump site, where all the garbage from Nairobi goes to, and almost two tons of garbage are dumped there on a daily basis because there's no actual proper waste management governance in the city. So the conditions worsen. So returning to the work that you mentioned at the start, and participatory action research is, is obviously a bit jargony, but the, yes. the point, as I understand it, would be to capture the lived experiences and, and perceptions of people in this space and in particular you and, 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 and people you work with have been doing that around the experience of uh, public authority and in particular policing. What does the state, what does the, the city and the police service look like from the perspective of residents of these areas? What is their uh, mode of interaction I guess with, with public authority? For me, the face of the government here could be, I open the tap and I have water and I have functioning sewage. And yeah. So if I'm thinking of the government that way, then I can see it exists in services. But in Madare, it's, the face of the government is the police. And the police, when they're in Madare, uh, rarely are they there to, to serve. They're there to take money from drugs or from illegal <coughs> alcohol or to, for raids. So that is how the state is interacted with, for the most part, because you don't have good housing, poor schools, mm. or poor hospitals, but primarily people, they see the state in the actions of the police. And that's really shapes fears and aspirations, even life expectancy. Your interactions with the police shape all of those things. Well, the main product in this regard that I read was the report that you co-authored on extraditional executions, which is obviously the extreme end of that spectrum. It's not yeah. the, the, the be-all and end-all of it. Can you walk me through what that looks like? I mean, what is the course of events that leads up to a, an incident like that? So the report is mm -hmm. called Who is Next? A participatory action report against a normalization of extrajudicial yeah. killings in Madare. So that report came about because as a researcher, I also know that even if we all sign on these research ethics, the research we do as academics or as researchers could be much more ethical. And so why we were drawn to participatory action research is that it builds on the questions that people want answered. The research questions don't come from a university or the EU or whatever funding cycle, they come from the questions that people want answered and then informs the action they will take. And so that's why, even if it has a long word, it really comes from really great considerations, you know, and not research for research sake. That's something that I have a personal crusade against, mm -hmm. just research for research sake. Anyway, so this report, uh, which we did over two years, and that can be downloaded from the Madare Social Justice Center website, came about because we were tired of being told that, oh, you're lying, These, this number of poor people could not have been killed by the police. The police will deny it. They won't give you, if you can't report it at a police station, it's very hard to pay for a post-mortem if you can't afford it. So there were these many factors, quite a few factors that contributed to people thinking, oh, it can't possibly be true. There was also a lot of fear around documenting extrajudicial killings because the Kenyan state historically has had such a heavy hand on people who do this kind of work. But we did it because so many people were dying in Madare, they were being killed. 
in events that were really, they're just in doing mundane daily activities and then the police will say, we were looking for you, you were a thief. So someone I used to teach, Stephen had just come from doing, uh, being part of an <laughs> acrobatics troupe in China. And he comes back, he's walking in the market and he's told, we've been looking for you, we told you not to come because you're a thief. At eight in the morning, he's shot in the market. 17 years old. Or Charles Miner, who was on a building site uh, working, was dragged from a building site at 2 p.m. and said, you're a thief and shot in broad daylight. And the killings we've documented in Madare have, have circumstances like this. And even if someone was caught in robbery or oh. doing criminal activities, yeah, we have a constitution still, that still says... still obviously would not justify that. It doesn't justify it, but unfortunately we... We have a formally informal shoot-to-kill policy by the government and maybe dead bodies are the evidence that people need to say that Nairobi is working on its crime problem. Well, but for me, I think it's much deeper because you can see throughout the history of Madari or these poor urban settlements, there's already the consideration of people as not worthy to be city dwellers or not worthy to be citizens or always suspects. And so killing one more is you know, trying to make Kenya devoid of these uh, historically tainted criminals, you know. Mm. In terms of how, how events like this happen, people are just shot in broad daylight. No, there was a case in December, December 25th, of two young men who were living in a children's home in Madare, in, uh, close to our office, who were shot. No idea why. They were shot. One had just finished his KCSC exams. Just shot. And then the police person will report that we found these guys with a gun and this ammunition. But he's, everyone, everyone knew these kids, you know? There persists the narrative that if you've shot someone in Madare then, or surrounding areas, then likely they were engaged in some criminal activity. But our report, which from Madare showed 50 cases and nationally 803. It shows that there's no evidence the police provides mm. to shoot these people. But even if the evidence is not there, just by virtue of them killing mm. these large amounts of people should be enough to make everyone rise up. But nothing has happened. And that's why we did this report. What initially propelled us was that generations were being killed in Madare. In my 10 years there, I knew, I don't even live there, I knew so many people had been killed, mothers who had lost two sons or, mm -hmm. you know? Then this question arose from the community. If you'll see the kind of mainstream NGO research that arises in Kenya is on civic education, which is so boring. It probably has a billion dollars behind it, but it's so boring and generic and it's to tick a box that Kenyans are doing civic education. Mm -hmm. If not, they'll be violent during the elections. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just to tick that box. But if you go somewhere and say, in Kiambiu, what re participatory action research do you want to do? What question do you want to answer? We're doing research now in Kiambiu on housing, on the need for adequate housing. In Dandora, it's on access to good quality healthcare because people are getting expired drugs in mm. bad hospitals. So without talking too long and also reflecting back on this report, it came out of a genuine need and the other kinds of research we're doing in different settlements comes out of the question is there, the ethics are better because it's people who live there who are bringing these cases, reporting, mm -hmm. and it has an action behind it. It's not just research for research's sake. What uh, did this lead into? This is now, <clears throat> this is 2017, so a little bit of time has elapsed. Yes. Does that lead into anything very concrete in terms of political organizing around these issues? What's the sort of what next on this kind of research work? So, I mean, hopefully, and hopefully it has results that are just unfolding, but First, it says that poor people are not liars because you cannot, and as has been happening before, once you see this report, you cannot uh, discount people's narratives of these killings. So it establishes that, but it also establishes this, those killings and it allows 
people from all walks of life to use that information for advocacy purposes. So mm -hmm. it has a life beyond uh, what we can imagine. In terms of concrete action, I th it's really galvanized a campaign against extrajudicial killings, not just in Nairobi, but across the country. And it also relates, and it's important to say this, to the enforced disappearances of young Muslim men in the coast, mm -hmm. or people who are rounded up and disappeared and killed or tortured because they're supposed to Al-Shabaab recruits, you know? It intersects with all of these ongoing violences and then cumulatively can offer a, a more united platform to, to advocate against killings, but also killings not devoid or absent of a context that requires social justice. And there's kind of a emerging network model yeah. Um, in this regard, recognizing some commonality of issues across these different spatial locations. So Madara Social Justice Center was in a small way a pioneer, yeah. of course, also anchored in the struggles of, larger struggles of this country. But since then, there are now 26 different social justice centers across the country using a community-based justice center as a model for organizing. And so it's really had impact that's still unfolding and as 26 community justice centers you can have more political say than one and since the formation of these justice centers uh, we've been able to meet say the minister of interior to say these are the killings that are happening ipoa won't which is an independent policing oversight authority will call us for meetings so there's ground on both the community level and in terms of these higher echelons of power, you know, in accessing them, not to share the bounties because we're not interested, but in trying to ensure that every Kenyan can have their right to life, you know, in all the, in all the ways that they need to have their right to life. What was uh, surprising to you when you were doing this research in interacting directly with of people closest to these incidents. What emerged from that that you found new or striking or unanticipated? I think what is always sad and also surprising is how these deaths are normalized and how our they're normalized on the ground even for poor people. It's not normal that your child can be shot and then you are told to pay for the bullets that kill this child. That, that, that is not normal. Mm. Or it's not normal that the, you need a permit to meet for a funeral gathering because your child has been killed by the police in Madare. When you but say normalized. That it's taken as the norm, that it doesn't require. Now, of course, people are beginning to interrogate how it's become normalized. And, mm. But that it was normal, that your child could be killed can get a post-mortem. If you get a post-mortem, maybe within that bill, you'll pay for the bullets. That was normalized. What is also, maybe I shouldn't say surprising, but what's also sad is how that it's still not a priority for the country to think about how generations are being erased. I feel like if the middle class were more organized around or used their Twitter power to talk about this yeah. and all of their internet access that they have, then maybe there would be some change. And it's just, in some ways it's surprising, but it's mostly sad that we haven't come together across class around this issue. And how does this dimension of government or governance interact with others. So you mentioned the other issues that uh, you and, and people you work with have been looking at include in particular access to water Yeah. in, in the case of Mathari. Does that intersect with policing? Does one support the other in, in, in a, any sort of direct or indirect way? I think the most obvious way it supports, they support each other is because the framing is criminals and prostitutes who live in Madare 
uh, that informs the kind of policing, informs a planning that doesn't consider these people worthy of basic services. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's where the intersection is, is most explicit. But at the same time, we can see the same people being killed at whim, are the same people who, have, who are marginalized in other ways. So we can see that it's the same continuum. Mm. If you have no washroom, no school, no water, no security, bad schooling, you're also very much at risk of being killed by a police bullet. And also how the government responds if they are to try and get those services, because many Madara residents, the Nairobi City Water and Sewerage Company, they acquire non-revenue water. So this mm -hmm. is what they call water that is supposedly stolen. And you, residents who are caught trying to steal water are sometimes maybe via pump or whatever, are also heavily criminalized and penalized, you know? So we can see that intersection in different ways. But are there, are there second order effects in terms of how people organize their lives and, and what livelihood activities look like and uh, the role of women and so on? I mean, I imagine the sort of de facto criminalization of public space for young men in particular, yes. some women obviously, but especially young men, would have a number of social effects. You, there's informal curfews. Don't go out at this time. You don't have the liberty that other people have. You see the police and you run. So people are, they perform their functions responding to a heavily militarized or securitized environment. So they have to shape their, their work around that. But also they don't have many options. So if you're going to, you just grow up knowing, okay, it's, I need to, if I'm in the Chang'ai industry, which is an illegal, ostensibly illegal brew, then I need to make sure I make enough margins to give the police, you know? Mm -hmm. And also, I would say that the kind of masculinities people take up are in response to this heavily militarized environment, you know, mm -hmm. that people Growing up where there's lots of struggle and also for sure there's lots of in, intra-community violence. That's not disputed. You know, while we point at the police, we also recognize there's quite high levels of intra-community violence. But combined, this allows or kind of directs people to cer certain hyper-masculine ways of, of living, you know. Also senses of self. Space also shapes how you understand yourself and the opportunities in that space. Is there a cultural entity then in the sense of the hyper-masculine expression you mentioned in the sense of how people define themselves in part by these considerations of where they live as being part of who they are. Does that translate into a, to a recognizable cultural identity? Because yes. Nairobi is famous for having a, this, an urban culture, right? Like, yeah. and, and its own language and, and so yes. on and so forth. Sheng. Yeah. What I would say is that the Sheng or the, or the Sheng is kind of the informal Swahili English street lexicon or the language of Uta mm -hmm. or the street. I would say I noticed in that Sheng a lot of reference to like a war vernacular. So yeah, a young person I'll talk to will be like, I'm the last man standing or I'm in exile. I have to go into exile. And it's something I'm trying to think about a bit more. These battle references in some respect, you know, crossfire, mm -hmm. someone was killed in the crossfire. And you're like, I'm not in, where are we, you know? <laughs> But it also engenders activists who are raw and not afraid and really inspiring. And that's something that I, I'm, that makes me really happy that it can generate activists that are fierce and known and known for being fierce. Mm. And also residents who, like, if you're going to evict them, just know you better get ready for a long battle. And that's, that's inspiring. Your hypothetical business card. Yes. Why do, you, why do you want to be a displanner, unplanner? 
I want to be a disc planner because the origins of Nairobi are really, they're not great. And yeah. the planning has not done anything to undo the colonial grids of this city. The life that Madari residents live is, is part of the accretion of these crappy dynamics from yeah. since the uh, creation of Nairobi as we know it. Before it used to be a, a cool river point with lots of streams where Maasai and Kikuyu used to trade and it had a, hopefully, not to romanticize the past, but a much more egalitarian function. Now it's just, it seems to prioritize an economic function over a social function. Huh? And, and in prioritizing that economic function, there are many people who are not relevant to their kind of economics or kind of aesthetic also that Nairobi wants to have and they get really oppressed and so that's why I was saying we need to displan this city no more planning I can't deal with more planning even if to be honest planning formal planning is not even with all of these formal world-class city aspiring documents it's not very effective yeah. but the the logic or the rationale is still there and mm -hmm. it still shapes the space and on that Notes and amongst many other things, uh, Nairobi is, is a hub for the international development sector or industry, if we're honest. <laughs> there are vast numbers of non-governmental organizations here, international and national. Interesting that that hasn't arisen in the course of this conversation which leads me to think there aren't that many points of intersection between these issues that you're talking about here and that world of organized development planning is that a fair assessment you know i think maybe if you if you talk to me two years ago mm. I hope I I would like to think I'm older and wiser and more generous in my. <laughs> you're about in to, my are you about to go on a rant? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean hopefully not, but the humanitarian industries. There's sexy poor people and then there's non-sexy poor people, you know, <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. Or the sexy poor issues, and police killings is not one of them. Mm. Maybe I'm being crass. That's a crass way to say it, but. It's true, and so it doesn't intersect with this world of log frames. Maybe post the release of our report in 2017, we became involved in a project with Peace Brigades International, another organization who I don't want to name, uh, mm -hmm. and us and uh, a grassroots organization called Get Foundation. What we're glad for is that this, this intersection arose when we had already started the work, you know? Mm -hmm. So throughout the progression of the work, maybe people will come to you and say, okay, this is what we're doing, but we had already started the work and we'll continue the work beyond this. But I don't find that this world of New York reports, maybe they'll write a report, but they're not interested in community action mm -hmm. at all. And this is probably why I haven't spoken about them is because what really I would hope and I think we're struggling for social justice centers is for each community member to be their own activist and an activist for their community. And because they're not so much interested in that, you can't delimit it as an outcome or as a deliverable. That's probably why we're, we're, they're not so much in our consciousness. But of course, we're, we're able to work together, we work together. And, there are people who work within these organizations who also have the same aspirations. Actually, recently, for the first time, social justice centers contributed to the universal peer review, is that what it's called for Kenya, the UPR document? And that's because of work we're already doing. So yeah. when they find us doing work we're already doing and offer a new angle to that, that's great. But for the most part, our focus is, is making sure that we can support each other to be activists, to demand better. The choice of words is interesting uh, and obviously important. Social justice as opposed to 
the dominant framing uh, that you will hear around quote-unquote slums, quote-unquote deprived urban areas, or whatever the mm -hmm. euphemism we want to use is, is going to be development, right? Yes. Um, not justice. Do you have any reflections on why and how that resonates or why that matters? Honestly, for me, there, uh, development has a kind of Darwinian thing in it because mm -hmm. they're like, I'm developed, so I'm coming to help you develop. And to develop, you need to make sure you, you have the same civil liberties as the US or whatever. But justice is better because it recognizes, it's invested with histories because you need justice because something has happened or something's ongoing. And social justice also brings to the fore a collective justice. It's not just human rights in the way they've been understood and maybe also because the government, maybe we need to be honest, the government vilifies human rights organizations. So maybe we are also shaped by that perspective, but human rights in the way that is implemented is so bureaucratic, so focused on individual liberties. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't sit well in sometimes in how we think about what we want. Uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on is what does this look like going forward for you? Because you commented that you not only don't get paid for this sort of thing, but don't want to get paid for this sort of thing. But of course, we all need to uh, fit these things into some sort of like viable yeah. life plan. Yes. How do you envisage this sort of work articulating with post postdoc life? Life. Uh, I, I, you described yourself as a as a reluctant academic in another conversation <laughs> we have. But how do you how do you fit this into plans going forward? You know, I. Maybe I should stop being so saucy and insulting everyone because I know <laughs> I know in the long term I'll need to I need good sound bites, please. Yeah. Go, go nuts. You know, I you know, I also am lucky enough to have a degree that can get me a job. And so hopefully I can teach a little bit and maybe we can draw research resources into the organization instead of maybe mm. human rights organization, like human rights money into the organization mm. and, and work to support that. Because mm. we, all, we actually help people do research. They've been scholars from the US, from Norway, from Denmark, who've come to do research. And so that builds the organization, but also us. And I'm not sure, I mean, I really, right now I'm trying to get into a local university I still don't have a contract, mm -hmm. even if this is week three of teaching. But I really, I would hope to do this research. And I'm, I have no problem being paid outside of the organization to do research. And, yeah. But within the organization, the ultimate goal is to try and foster this activism on generations and to, to interrogate what we've normalized and to, to make claims that are really not... Uh, they're not extraordinary claims, they're, claim, they're your claims and your rights, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what we want to do. And so also because of my privilege in this country, I can, I can call people and cry for a research contract if I need to, you know. Well, I know you're not saying that you're committed to a sort of tenure track, lifetime academic career. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah. is this kind of research something that can be recognized and incorporated into that world because ultimately you're under pressure to produce a certain kind of research that responds to disciplinary criteria and and goes to certain places and can be presented in certain ways right so particularly the, the par stuff i'm just curious if that gels with expectations in the academic world or if it's something that has to be strictly separate? So far, I mean, in my even reluctant academic life, <laughs> it's the experiences in Madare that shape me and shape how I think about yeah. dominant theory. And so PAR has been different because in PAR we make demands and mm. we want actions. And, mm. you know, we use 
our experiences or people's experiences as the framework that holds that together. Mm -hmm. And that's not something you can do very much in academic life and have legitimacy, unfortunately, because it's so, it's so problematic. But I try and find small ways to bring it in. Mm -hmm. And part of that is also not doing research for research's sake, you know, trying mm -hmm. to write things even with, within my academic life that can, can move some small justice issue forward, even if it's like one millimeter, just try and move it forward in some way. So I'm still seeing how to do that. And maybe if I hopefully get a job in a local university that's permanent, not with the aspirations to have a like wonderful university career, but also as a base to also bring, to try and bring, even if it may not happen in my lifetime, but to try and bring discussions from the PAR processes we have or the mm. work we do into that space to also shape the university a little bit. So those are my, those are my hopes. I may, yeah. Robbing banks is also an option. Being a corrupt governor is also an option. Yeah, we'll <laughs> you'll get you'll get we'll see. you'll get corrupted yeah. soon enough, don't worry. Yeah, I'll get corrupted. Anything else that you had in mind but hasn't come up? I think it's really important to recognize the work that people have been doing for this for a long time. In a podcast, it's easy to talk about yourself because also you're the person being interviewed but yeah, that's that's the format that's doesn't, the format. doesn't mean you're naked but there's people who have been doing this work for so long and with no recognition and so yeah. i'm really grateful to the people who support me and help me learn and their parents and also people who are nameless and maybe faceless we don't know who i just to appreciate that work that they do to try and make nairobi more uneven and more equal Mm. Kenya broadly and yeah I really appreciate that work and say I, as I proceed as we proceed uh, it's we're grateful for what they've set up and we continue learning from them You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.